name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I want to thank the uh, photo sisters so much for being here with us this morning. God bless you guys. Thank you. Looking forward to, to seeing you all again tonight. Yeah, amen. Thank you. And for, for just for Dustin and, and Carmen and the, the group here that are here with us every week, we appreciate you all so much. Thank you for, for leading us in worship every week. It's time now for us to open the Bible together to study the Word of God. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, the end of that chapter. Uh, last year on Wednesday evenings, Jay Reisner and I led a, a study of Mark's gospel that was uh, titled, Following Jesus on the Way. And I enjoyed that study very much. And one passage, though, that I didn't preach in that study was the end of Mark 8. And it's one of the most important passages really in the New Testament. Uh, again, if you'll, you'll turn there with me, if you're, you're just coming in at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Now, what we have here is really the core of Jesus' teaching on the subject of discipleship. Uh, there's, there's not any words of Jesus more important for your life and my life about being a follower of Jesus than these words. It, it's the simplest, most, most succinct statement in the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, we need to come back to these words really again and again. I, I come back to them often to, to measure my own life and my own uh, discipleship uh, by these words because they're the very words of Jesus himself. And I've been praying all week uh, that the Lord will take this passage this morning and, and arrest our hearts. And then maybe there's some of you here this morning that, that deeply need to hear this word and this renewed call to discipleship. Now, almost every book and commentary that you will read on Mark's gospel, this section here that we're going to focus on this morning has some title. In fact, your Bible may even say this above it, The Cost of Discipleship. And that's certainly true. I mean, that's here in this passage. There's no getting away from that. Jesus uh, calls us to follow him, and it's costly. There, there's no getting around that. But I don't believe that calling it the cost of discipleship captures the full essence of what's here. So after studying this passage again this week, there's some things that struck me anew. And so I'm going to start calling this passage from now on the bargain of discipleship. Because I believe that being a committed follower of Jesus Christ, while it is costly, it's the greatest bargain in all the world. And nothing else even comes close to it. Let me read beginning in Mark 8, 34. And he, that is Jesus, summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever, wishes, uh, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, so reads God's inspired word. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard, many of you, of, the, of Ernest Shackleton. He was the great audacious Antarctic explorer. Um, he uh, made three trips down to the Antarctic back in the early uh, 20th century. But what's fascinating is there's, there's an ad that was placed in the London newspaper. It's one of the famous, most famous adver advertisements in history. Here's what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long hours or long months of complete darkness, 
Constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Now, as unappealing as that may sound, the trip actually turned out even worse than advertised. If you know anything about the trip, in August 1915, Shackleton uh, took off in the ship called the Endurance. Uh, they got trapped down there in ice in August of or October of 1915. Uh, the, the, uh, the ice was shifting often, and it was beginning to break up the ship under the pressure, so they had to abandon their ship. They lived on ice flows for some period of time. Uh, they made a run for Elephant Island, and it was basically as inhospitable as, the life, uh, as those ice flows. So Shackleton gets five other men in a lifeboat. They take one month's supplies of supplies, a 20-foot lifeboat, and they make out for South Georgia Island. They only have a month to live. Um, in 17 days, they travel 720 nautical miles. Uh, they arrive there. In fact, there's one story. Some of you may have read this before, but at one point on, on the uh, journey, Shackleton calls to the other men, and he says, I think the sky is clearing. And then a moment later, I realized what I had seen was not a rift in the clouds, but the white crest of an enormous wave that was coming over their ship. I mean, it was a, a harrowing journey. Um, what's interesting, though, is he gets there, he gets back, and they, they get the men from Elephant Island. Not one man in this journey lost their life. It's an, it's an amazing story. But uh, in his book, uh, Muscular Faith, Ben Patterson says this, what was the response to the ad in the London newspaper? It was, over, it was overwhelming. Inquiries poured in. Shackleton said, it seemed that all the men in Great Britain were determined to accompany me. I mean, just thousands of men apply for this job. Although these men had no idea their trip would turn out to be so perilous or so lengthy, they weren't naive about the risks involved. They knew they were volunteering for a dangerous voyage. Then he says, why would anybody want to travel with somebody like Shackleton? I would, I would agree with that. Were there just a lot of jaded, deluded men in England who could think of nothing better than to make low wages and live in bitter cold and constant danger? Perhaps, but more likely, they wanted to experience something of what Shackleton said happened to the souls of those who went on these expeditions. Looking back on all they had done, Shackleton said this, We had seen God in His splendors. We had heard the text that nature renders. We had reached the naked soul of men. And he said, that's what they signed up for. That's what they wanted. He said, these men were glory seekers. They thought the high price was a bargain. And, and like, like Ernest Shackleton, here in Mark's gospel, Jesus is brutally honest about what it means to follow him. He pulls no punches. He, he gives it to us straight. In fact, Jesus could never be accused of false advertising. He, Jesus never tried to lure people to follow him under false pretenses of, of ease and comfort in life. Uh, Jesus didn't try to pull some bait and switch on people that followed him. Nothing is hidden in what Jesus says here. It's all up front. There's nothing written down in the fine print in the bottom. It's kind of like when you go to a, a hotel and you want to get on the Wi-Fi there and you have to get the password and you get on the Wi-Fi, but before you can get on there, there's usually several pages of terms and conditions, right? And then at the bottom, there's that little icon that says agree and you punch that and you can get on the, the Wi-Fi. Now, I don't know about you, I've never read the pages of terms and conditions. I have no idea what's in there. You just go on down there and push agree, right? But, but Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't hide the terms and conditions for following him in fine print. He clearly lays out 
what it means to follow him. And, and there's no way to get around it here. This passage holds our feet to the fire. And so I hope you're ready this morning to be challenged. We need often in our Christian lives to be challenged of what it really means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And this passage contains a very simple message. Following Jesus will be hard, but it will be worth it. It will cost you, but it's going to be a bargain. In fact, here's the main thought I want to develop this morning. The high price of following Jesus is a bargain. It's the greatest bargain in the world. Jesus wants us to know the price is high. He never shies away from that, but he wants us to know whatever it costs us, it's a bargain that's worth having. Now, I want to begin looking at the cost this morning. I want to back up a little bit to verse 27 to kind of get the context here. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this is the turning point in Mark's gospel. It's the literary center of the book. It's the intersection of the book. It's the high point thus far because Peter is going to give this great confession of who Jesus is. And Jesus is with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, about 120 miles north of Jerusalem, right at the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, Lord willing, the group of us going to Israel will be there in about three or four weeks at that place. It's one of my favorite places in Israel. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some one of the prophets. And he continued by saying the great question of all time, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. This great confession of Peter. Now, I love this because Jesus doesn't reject or deny what Peter says about him. Think about that. People come to Jesus and they'll say, you're the son of God. People will come to Jesus. You remember the, uh, the, the one leper comes back that's cleansed and falls down at Jesus' feet and worships him. If Jesus is not really the Messiah, if he's not really the Son of God, if he's not really God, what should he be telling these people when they say this stuff? Don't ever say that about me again, right? It's not true. Jesus receives worship, and he receives honor, and he receives titles like this uh, of Messiah. It's another proof of who Jesus is. But Jesus then tells them not to go tell anybody about him. You say, well, I thought Jesus wanted people to go tell others about him. The problem at this point is the disciples have no idea what Jesus' mission really entails. And if they go out and start telling people about him, they're going to tell him all kinds of wrong things. And we'll see this in a moment. They don't even understand the mission of Jesus. So at this time, he says, you know I'm the Messiah, but don't go tell anyone. You have a lot to learn about me before you go out and tell others. Because they have this wrong view of him. Notice then in verse 31, Jesus begins to clarify what it really means that he's the Messiah. And this is the first of three passion predictions in Mark's gospel. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. The mission of the Messiah is that Jesus will suffer and he'll be rejected and he will die and rise again. So his mission at his first coming is not victory and conquest of Israel's enemies, but it's rejection and suffering and death. And I love this. Jesus says the Son of Man must be rejected and must die and must rise again. He doesn't just say, I'm going to die. He says, I must die. I have to die. And the reason Jesus has to die is, is because his death is the only way that God can pardon us from our sins and not judge us. 
I hope you all know this, that the price of sin has to be paid. God declares the death sentence for sin. And God cannot overlook that. The price has to be paid. And Jesus came and took our death sentence for us. He absorbed all of the judgment and the wrath of God for us. So his messianic mission was to be a suffering Messiah, to provide atonement for sin. And I hope you've confessed Christ like Peter did here and accepted what he did for you on your behalf. The Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray that you've followed Peter in doing that and confessing who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Now, the problem here is Peter and the other disciples have never heard of a suffering Messiah. Their view is of a conquering Messiah. Now, it's in the Old Testament, but the Jewish people didn't focus on that. They focused only on the glory and the coming of the Messiah and his conquest of their enemies, not the suffering Messiah. So Peter, when he hears Jesus say, I'm going to be rejected and, and, and die and rise again, he recoils at the idea of this suffering Messiah, and he feels obliged to correct Jesus. So you'll notice in uh, verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now what's fascinating here, in verse 29, you have the greatest thing Peter ever said. You are the Christ. And in verse 32, you have the worst thing Peter ever said when he takes Jesus aside to try to, to correct him. And the word that's used here, he began to rebuke Jesus. It's a strong word. It's used consistently in Mark's gospel when Jesus or the apostles rebuke a demon. And so it may be that Peter thinks, Jesus, you're so confused, you're actually talking like Satan here and the idea of, of having to go to the cross and die. So one minute Peter's inspired by heaven, and the next moment he's literally inspired by hell. And think of the irony of this. Peter has just proclaimed, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And literally seconds later, he's thinking he needs to correct Jesus about what Jesus has come to do. I mean, that's classic Peter, isn't it? Well, I know you're the Messiah, but let me help you out here a little bit on what you really need to do in your mission. So Peter's view of the Messiah and all the other disciples was focused on the national restoration of the Jewish people and the destruction of Israel's enemies. They wanted a, a military Messiah. They wanted a, a conquering Christ. And surely Jesus is that. He will be that when he comes again. But his mission when he came the first time was to die. And I love verse 33. But Jesus turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's the same Greek word. Now, this time, Peter does need to be rebuked because he is speaking for Satan. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, that get behind me, Satan, some take that to mean that Jesus is saying, get away from me. But others, when saying get behind me, mean, take it that Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, get behind me. Follow me, like he's getting ready to tell him here. You get behind me and you fall in line uh, behind me. Because see, what Peter is doing here is he wants Jesus to be a shortcut Savior. In other words, Jesus, you can have the crown without going to the cross. And that's the very thing that Satan had promised Jesus in the wilderness when he tempted him. It's the, the, the crown without the cross. Now, with that background, we come to verse 34, the principle here. And Jesus, Jesus pivots from talking about himself now to talking about his followers. And these are some of Jesus' most challenging words. These are some of the, the hard sayings of Jesus, if you will. Now, one thing that's important 
to up front to understand is this passage is not talking about what you have to do to become a believer, what you have to do to get eternal life. This passage is telling us how we live for Christ after we've become a believer, not how to get life. Because if it's telling us what we have to do to get life, then it's telling us about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. And the following there is a lifetime experience. So it's, it's focusing on our own works, whereas we know from the Bible, from other places, even Jesus' teaching, we're saved by God's grace through faith, not by what we do. There's a great story from H.A. Ironside years ago, one of my favorite old preachers. He was preaching at a, at a university in California, and when he got finished, this would, have, this would have been like in the 30s or 40s, a student came up and said, Dr. Ironside, there are thousands of religions. How do we know which one is true? And Ironside said to him, before we can get into your, your question, I need to clarify. He said, there's not thousands of religions or even hundreds of religions. There's two religions. There's all the other religions in the world that tell you what you have to do in order to have life or forgiveness or whatever they promise. And there's Christianity that tells you what somebody else has done for you. And he says, if you think you can get your salvation by your own efforts, then Christianity has nothing to say to you. But if you know you need to be saved, then you're a candidate. And I love that. All the religions of the world can be put under one big heading, do. It's something you have to do to earn, to somehow merit the favor of whatever deity you worship. Biblical Christianity says it's done. Another has done everything for you. And all you have to do is come and call upon his name and receive life. So Mark 8 is not telling us here these qualifications, the way of salvation. It's the pathway of discipleship. It's not how you become a believer, but it's how you behave as a disciple of Jesus. So we come to Jesus to be saved, and then Jesus says, when you come to me, then you come after me, and you begin to follow me as a disciple. But, but confessing Christ, when we confess him as our Savior, that imposes a claim upon our life. And verse 34 gives the two essential requirements to be a follower of Jesus. These are the terms and conditions. And it's not just for a select few, because notice verse 34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples. He wants everybody to hear this, because Jesus doesn't want anyone to come along later and said, well, I knew I had to confess Jesus, but I didn't know about this death and dying kind of part. So he wants everybody to know what he's saying here. He sets it all out up front. And the first condition is deny yourself. Now, this doesn't mean to deny yourself something. Uh, this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of the Lent season, and many people give up something for those days leading up to Easter. It doesn't mean deny yourself something, like deny yourself chocolate or deny yourself your favorite whatever kind of latte it is at Starbucks or something like that. No, it doesn't mean deny yourself something. It means deny yourself. To say no to yourself to say yes to Christ, to give up yourself. It's to renounce self-sufficiency and self-autonomy. It's to repudiate the right to run your own life. Here's the way William Lane says it. Those who wish to follow Jesus must be prepared to shift the center of gravity of their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. 
The center of gravity of my life shifts from concern just for myself to a reckless abandon to the will of God. The Phillips translation says he must give up all right to himself. That's what it means. Now, this is radical. And and the problem is, and you all know this, and, and we all struggle with this ourselves, I would say many, if not most Christians today, think that following Jesus just entails kind of making a few minor adjustments to the way they're living. You know, I kind of need Jesus to come along and just kind of make a few minor adjustments to my life. No, he says, you got to deny yourself. A lot of people think that, well, to follow Jesus, I just kind of continue in the way I've been living, but I kind of just have Jesus as kind of an add-on or a supplement or kind of an extra to my life. That's not what Jesus says here. What he says is radical. He says, being a follower of me must change your life. You deny yourself. You give up yourself. And to follow him and deny him, it it should change how we live. It ought to change your marriage. People should look at your marriage and it should be different. They ought to look at our stewardship and how we handle the resources God's given us. Um, Our business practices, our relationships, every aspect of our life. If we give ourselves up uh, to him. Now, the second condition, he says, take up your cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? I think I've mentioned this here before, but a lot of times people kind of trivialize this and they say, well, you know, I got a husband that's hard to live with. I got a boss that's hard to deal with. I I got some physical problem or whatever. And that's just my cross to bear in life. No, in Mark's gospel, it was written to believers in Rome, and they knew all about crosses and crucifixion. These are people living in Rome. And this image would have reverberated in the minds of the readers here that were reading this in Rome. They knew that when a person was crucified, were led out by soldiers out to the place of execution, they didn't carry the whole cross. Remember, the horizontal beams were there already in place. But they would, uh, or the vertical beams were already in place, but they would just carry that horizontal piece out there to the place of execution. But when they were carrying that cross to go out to the place of execution, they were going out there uh, to die. When you saw a person being taken out by a group of soldiers out to the place of execution, you knew one thing it was a one way journey. A person wasn't uh, coming back, they were on a death march. And the old life was gone. And what this means to take up our cross is a willingness to follow Jesus on the path of sacrifice and suffering, even to death. And you think about this, there are people in the world today who are Christians who are dying for their faith. Over in the Middle East with ISIS and some of those groups, some of them have actually been crucified. And I look at our country today, and I see on the horizon, I think all of us do, that it's going to become much more difficult to become a Christian and to stand for Christ in the days ahead. It's come with such rapidity, really, in the last years. What will it be like in another decade or two or three? Taking up our cross means sacrifice. To daily live a life of sacrifice and submission to Christ, even death if necessary. You know, Luke's gospel, when he recounts this, It doesn't say just take up your cross. It says take up your cross daily and follow me. Look, Jesus, what he's saying to his disciples, he says, look, I'm the Messiah. And he says, you cannot have a crossless Christ. And if you can't have a crossless Christ, then you can't be a crossless Christian. 
A.W. Tozer, let me read a couple of quotes by him. These really struck me this week. These are beautiful. He says, to be crucified means three things. First, a man who's crucified is only facing one direction. Think about that. When you're on a cross, you're not, you can't look behind you. You face one direction towards the Lord. Second, when you go out to die on a cross, you're not coming back. And thirdly, a man on a cross has no further plans of his own. Somebody else has made his plans for him. And again, it's not that we don't make plans, but we don't have any more plans of our own. They're, they're submitted to the Lord. Here's a, 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 another statement by Tozer. In every Christian's heart, there's a cross and a throne. The Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps, he says, this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among so many gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Isn't that powerful? We want to be saved, but we want Jesus to do all the dying. And then he says this, no cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. The life we are called to is a life of the cross. It's a life of dethroning self. And it's a life of dying to self. Many of you have heard of George Mueller, uh, the great uh, philanthropist that had orphanages in England. Back in uh, 1834, when George Mueller started orphanages, or by the way, during his lifetime, he took care of 10,000 orphans. Um, in 1834, when he started this, there were only 3,600 orphans in all of England that were being cared for, and 8,000 children under the age of eight were in prison. They're orphans, and they were sent to prisons. Think about that. That was in, in England in, in the middle 1800s. Because of Mueller's ministry, 50 years after he died, 100,000 orphans were being taken care of in England. A man with a, a powerful life and testimony. But someone asked him one time, what was the secret to his life? And here's what he said. There was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. It's the secret of his life. There was a day when George Mueller died to George Mueller. And what he cared about from that day on was living, himself, living his life for the Lord. Now, you notice this third thing. It says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I don't think follow me is a third requirement. I think denying yourself and taking up your cross. He's saying, in doing that, you follow me. He's saying, in other words, do this, actually take action now, begin to do these things, and in so doing them, you'll follow me. Then he goes on, and we'll just spend a few minutes here in these verses. There's a lot we could say, but th there's a paradox here. Verses 35 to 38, there are four fours here. The word four occurs four times. Four, 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 the four different times. And it's giving the implications or the consequences, if you will, of false or true discipleship. And I love what Mark Strauss in his commentary says about this. He says, the paradox of salvation is that it costs us nothing, yet it costs us everything. That's a powerful statement. It doesn't cost anything, but yet, in another way, it really does cost us everything. And he says in verse 35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
Now you say, what does it mean to save your life? Well, it could mean the idea of saving your life, that is, you know, denying Christ to actually save your life from death as a martyr. But I think it's broader than that. To save your life in the context of what he said in verse 34 means to live for self. Literally, it means to hoard up your life, to hoard it for yourself, to live to just to, to secure your own comfort and your own ease and your own self-preservation, to just live to kind of protect your own life. And he says, if you live your life to save your life, you're going to lose your life. In other words, it's a paradox. The losers are the keepers. And the keepers in the long run are the losers. And he says in verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, the answer to both of those questions is nothing. What does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. You can't buy your soul back. Like J.C. Ryle said, the whole world cannot make up for the loss of the soul. So look for all of us here this morning. What Jesus is saying is don't save your life for yourself. Give it to Christ. I mean, D.L. Moody made a great statement one time. It's one of my favorite simple statements. Give your life to Christ. He can do more with it than you can. Give your life to Him. He can do more with it than you can. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. It's a bargain is what he's saying. It's a bargain to give everything for Christ. Now that raises the question, then what's worth chasing in life? What should we chase? Remember in Matthew 13, Jesus told those two little parables. A man was out digging in a field, and he found a buried treasure. It's an interesting the way Jesus tells it. The guy hides it, and he goes back and buys the field. He sells everything he has to go buy that field to have that treasure. And then he tells about a, a, a pearl merchant. He's searching for pearls, and he finds a pearl of inestimable price. And he goes and liquidates his entire holdings to gain uh, that pearl. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. So the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ, he's saying, is a good buy. It's a bargain at any price you have to pay in order to gain it. And then he closes with this searching statement. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father and His holy angels. He's saying, look, do you want honor now from everybody just to seek honor and then shame then? Or are you willing to accept some shame now so that you can have honor then? Someday every one of us will stand before our Creator, and we won't stand before Him then to make the choice of whether we're going to follow Him or not. But what will happen then is the choice we've already made will be revealed. That's the cost that Jesus is saying here. It's high. It's denial of self. It's death to self. Now, here's the connection most people miss in this passage. They stop right there, and it seems like all cross and all cost. Man, it's all negative. 
But Jesus doesn't end there. He goes from the cross to the crown. He's saying, look, the way, the walk of the crucified Christ in this life is to suffer, but we'll walk the pathway of the conquering Christ in the life to come if we follow him. That's why he says in verse 9, I say to you, some of you who are standing here, you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. Now, if we go on and read the rest of this passage, six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, to Mount Hermon, and he's transfigured before them. His essential glory shines out. He's like the shining like the sun. And what that is is a snapshot of the second coming of Jesus. It's a glimpse of his future glory. And so he's giving the disciples a glimpse of what it's going to be like when he comes to incentivize them and motivate them to live for him. He knows how hard it's going to be. Jesus didn't just say, well, hey, then just gut it out, you know. He says, no, I want to give them the incentive and the motivation to live for him. What Jesus is telling them is glory is coming. Glory is coming. And if you follow me, you're going to share in that glory. Now, I read earlier that quote by, by uh, Shackleton that he put in the hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful. But there was one last sentence I left out, and it's this. Honors of men around England wanted to sign up. And I think when they read that, they didn't see the bitter cold, the long hours, the debt safe return doubtful. All they saw were those words, honor and recognition in the event of success. If we're successful, you're going to get honor and you're going to receive recognition. Men couldn't sign up fast enough because they were glory seekers. They thought the, the, the high cost was a bargain. And let me ask you this morning, do, do you believe that the high price of following Jesus, of denying yourself and taking up your cross daily, do you really believe that that's a bargain? Do you really believe that Jesus and his gospel and his glory is more valuable than anything else? Following Jesus, really following him, it is costly. Again, we can never shy away from that. There's no way to water that down, but it's the greatest bargain in all the world. You and I should be glory seekers, seeking the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of these days, if we're faithful followers, we stand before him, we're going to be rewarded and we're going to be praised by him. And some people say, well, should we really live for that? Well, Paul did. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some of you have heard the name Jim Elliott. Um, he died in the late 50s with several other men. They were speared to death by the Alca Indians down in Ecuador. Um, but when he was a student at Wheaton College in his journal, he wrote that famous statement many of you have heard. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's beautiful, isn't it? He's no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. Look, our destiny, your destiny and my destiny, if we know the Lord, is glory with him. The high price of following Jesus is a bargain. It's the greatest bargain in the world. Let's pray together. Back when I was growing up in our youth group, we used to sing that old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's never for the very first time confessed Jesus and come to him to have their sins washed away, 
that they'd call upon the name of the Lord now and be saved, receive Him as their Savior. Father, I pray that Your Spirit has been at work in the hearts and lives of many of us here this morning, and the decisions have been made to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we think often about the delights and the glories of that heavenly kingdom and joyfully give ourselves to you. Oh, Father, help us each day to remember that no matter what the cost may be, it's a bargain. It's the bargain of a lifetime to follow you and to live for you and to follow Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we're dismissed. This is, a, this is a, a, it's a strong word today. I told you we were going to be challenged today by this. It's, it's a constant challenge to me. I'd encourage you to go back to those words again and again, to think often about your life. Am I, am I really denying myself? Am I really taking up my cross?